0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. No one wants to own up to COVID-19, and maybe no one should have to, especially if it turns out to to be a naturally occurring virus. But that doesn't stop some people from putting on their tinfoil hats and crying, conspiracy. And nobody seems to doubt that it came from China, except maybe China itself. One common narrative making its way around Chinese messaging apps these days is that an American soldier was patient zero. And Chinese netizens, um, as in Internet rumor mongers, are urging the United States to release health information about an American who attended the military world games in Wuhan. That, according to an offshoot of the official Chinese Communist Party publication, People's Daily, which insinuated that the U.S. Uh, military cyclists might have brought the disease from Fort Detrick in Maryland. And all this even after earlier Chinese media posts that made shaded uh, references to bioweapons and and the USA virus got little traction. Conspiracy theories are just one of those things we've always lived with. And not just a a Hollywood moon landing either or Elvis faking his death so that he could, you know, get a little peace and quiet for a while. Even before Martin Luther's day, There were people claiming that the Black Death, the the plague that swept across Europe in the 14th century, killing 25 million people or more, had been caused by Jews poisoning the water supply. How do you know what to believe? Can it be a conspiracy theory if it's true? A new Pew Research study just released found that a third of Americans surveyed believed that COVID-19 was created by humans in a laboratory as opposed to occurring naturally. 23% of that one-third believe that it was created intentionally. Now, a quarter of Americans say they aren't sure where it came from, and 1%, 1% refuse to believe the virus even exists. They refuse to believe in spite of the overwhelming evidence. That's unbelievable. And so on the second Sunday of Easter, we talk about the surprisingly unexpected resurrected Jesus. For a lot of people, that would have been hard to believe, wouldn't it? Would have been unbelievable. For a lot of people today, it still sounds unbelievable. What a day that first Easter morning had been, uh, the whole day. For Jesus' enemies especially. What a week it had been since his triumphant entry into a city to the waving of palm branches and cheering crowds that packed Jerusalem for the Passover and its week of festival activities. The ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, had lost two of its members that week. Uh, Nicodemus and, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea had defected to Jesus' camp, driven by faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Friday had been a tense day with the trial and the crucifixion of the Lord. Saturday, the Sabbath, had gone smoothly. The body of Jesus lay in a guarded, sealed tomb. Is closest followers missing. Most of the population still caught up in the rituals and and reunions associated with the, the Passover festivities. But this morning, early this morning on Sunday, the first day of the week, the guard who had been charged with watching over the tomb had returned terrified with tales of angels and broken seals and rolling stones. And the praetorium pilot would have been receiving continual reports that weekend. Each more disturbing than the one before, beginning with the strange occurrences Friday uh, afternoon on Golgotha. There was the questioning of the centurion in charge of the crucifixion. He'd voiced his personal conviction, and not for the first time, that based on what he saw and what he heard that day, Jesus really had been the Son of God. Think of what must have been going through the governor's mind. Pilate was in charge of keeping the peace. Pilate was in charge of keeping Rome at arm's length. And now this morning came the news of of an empty tomb and and a highly suspicious story being circulated by the chief priests that Jesus' disciples had run off with his body so that they could claim he had risen from the dead. And where were those followers? You couldn't question someone you couldn't find. And as it turned out, uh, on this Easter evening of our lesson, uh, they're hiding out in a nondescript room behind locked doors, and for good reason. According to their best information, they were accused of grave robbing for the purpose of insurrection, something they knew nothing about, something that only added to their own confusion, something that meant they were probably being hunted. That's where our gospel picks up the story, one of the most famous of all the gospels, because it ultimately speaks to a deep human condition. You know, in the face of confusion and a CSI proof makes positive world where physical evidence is the king, uh, doubt can be the norm for many people. It's where they start. Now, sometimes doubt can be useful. It can keep us from being scammed by dishonest types who would make our money and our hard-earned possessions their own. Doubt calls for an examination of the evidence. And the evidence of the resurrection had been piling up. Now, we call this the story of doubting Thomas, but as the story opens, the disciples are gathered together minus Thomas. Mary Magdalene had already come to them, not only announcing she'd seen the Lord that morning, but conveying his personal message to them about meeting in Galilee. Peter, too, had some kind of encounter with the risen Christ that day. We don't have the details about it, but even Paul mentions it uh, in 1 Corinthians. And Jesus had appeared to two other followers that afternoon who were already on the road heading home to Emmaus, probably hoping to put this whole crucifixion thing behind them and get back to their former lives. Unrecognized, Jesus had actually walked with them, talked with them, heard them share their sorrow about all the events that had taken place in the city, their dashed hopes. He'd even broken bread with them before they realized who he was, and at that moment he simply vanished. They'd run out of the house and made their way the eight miles back to Jerusalem to share the good news with the others that Jesus was alive. Now we can kind of guess that because of their afternoon encounter and with their round-trip journey, it was probably uh, later in the evening by now, maybe somewhere around 8 o'clock. Maybe uh, some of his disciples in the room that night already believed, based on their own encounters, certainly for some, or maybe the eyewitness accounts of some people that they knew and trusted. But, you know, owing to human nature and owing to the fact that rising from the dead was no ordinary thing, others were, were, weren't sure yet what to make of it all. Well, about that time, Jesus shows up. John specifically mentions that, the, that the, the, room, the doors were locked because he wanted to indicate, I suppose, that the Lord's entrance into the room that night was anything other than conventional. First he wasn't there, and then he was. And he didn't come empty-handed. Peace be with you, he says. It was a common enough Jewish greeting. But when Jesus says it, it's more than a greeting. It's a gift. and It was exactly what they needed, the peace of God. John says that he showed him his hands and his side, details to prove that he was the same person who was crucified. And they were glad to see him. Those marks were the the birthmarks of his new life, and they knew he'd done exactly as he said he would. He'd risen from the dead. He'd conquered death. His body had been glorified in in new life, but he was no ghost. And now for his disciples, there was no need to fear. The Lord was alive, and come what may, everything had changed. You know, the peace of Christ, that that unique peace we experience through Christ, is grounded in the fact of his resurrection. It's a a peace that sustains. As he stands before them with his nail-scarred hands and feet, his spear-pierced side, he's living proof that death will not have the last word with them. Because I live, you also will live. He told them that earlier, but they hadn't really understood. They'd forgotten until now. The details would come back, would be brought back by the Holy Spirit. You know, whenever we forget the peace of Christ that every child of God has been given through the constant presence of the Spirit, the Spirit we received at our baptisms, we risk losing sight of the risen Christ. And when that happens, we open ourselves up to fear and doubt, things that will, will just work to, to bury our hope if, if we give them a chance. The peace of Christ reminds us of Jesus' words to his disciples on the night of his arrest. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, he said. Believe also in me. The world they were about to go out into with this good news finds peace in the security of wealth, or the protection of armies, or the isolation of a triple locked door. But there's no real peace in any of these things because all of them will eventually become useless. Jesus' peace is an eternal peace made possible by his resurrection from the dead, a peace that reaches into your very soul. Our Savior has guaranteed our future by a cross and an empty tomb, a future that's ready for us to move into right now through faith in him. But Jesus has brought more for them than just peace, he's brought his plan. Now, they knew their mission. News like this couldn't be kept to yourself. They had a story of God's love and a promise of the empty tomb to take into a world that was sitting literally very comfortably in Satan's lap. A world of people dead in their trespasses, their sins. They must have wondered somewhere along the line, you know, how can we ever pull off a a project like this without him to lead us? And as it turns out, they won't have to. Jesus breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus was true man, but he was also true God. And they won't have to go into all the world without God at their side or in their hearts. They would be empowered by the third person of the Trinity, God's Holy Spirit. you never forget that people who have been given the peace of Christ are never left without the presence of Christ. The Spirit is his continuing presence. The Spirit would enable them, as he told them earlier, to do even greater things than he'd done. And that same Spirit will enable believers today to do even greater things than we might ever be able to imagine. And when doubt or fear creep into our lives, we, we can rely on the witness of the Spirit to bring to mind all the important details, all the promises of God's presence and his power for us. And then Jesus gives them the power to forgive and retain sins in his name. It's a gift given not just to these few followers, but to his whole church. It's a tool to drive people to the cross and the empty tomb where broken hearts are healed and made well again by the forgiveness that they'll find there. And not only the authority to assure someone that by their repentant heart and their faith in Jesus they can be sure their sins have been forgiven and forgotten by God, but the willingness and the desire to forgive themselves, to see others forgiven as well. Now Thomas returned some time after Jesus had left. They told him what had happened and uh, but Thomas wanted to see the proof with his own eyes. When the others reported what they'd seen and experienced, you know, Thomas only felt skepticism and doubt. They were well-intentioned. He could see that. They believed, but they weren't well-evidenced. And I don't know that, uh, that, he, that he doubted Jesus so much as the testimony of his friends. Peter, for one, who had denied knowing Jesus not just one time, but three times on the night of his, his arrest and trial. Most of the others had run for the hills when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the garden. And with the exception of John, they didn't seem to have been anywhere near the cross on Good Friday, lest they might end up on one too. That kind of behavior tends to discredit the witnesses, right? So are we talking about a doubting Thomas here or maybe a disillusion Thomas? Disillusion for sure. Along with all the rest of the disciples and so many others, they had hoped Jesus would be the key that this miracle-working Savior would help them to, to lead a, a movement to restore Israel to its former glory in the world. But after the crucifixion, they were disillusioned. A reluctant Thomas, maybe. He simply wanted tangible, touchable evidence that that really doesn't seem reasonable since, according to all the others, Jesus had just been there in person. I mean, it wasn't like he'd been in heaven for 2,000 years and Thomas was asking him to, to come down and show up in person. He wasn't in heaven, not yet anyway, not for 40 days. He was in town. You now, what surprises me about the whole thing is that Thomas would have been the, my last guest to actually have authentic doubts. There isn't much written about Thomas in the Gospels. I think uh, maybe only 150 words or so. Um, And it's in John's gospel, though, that he really becomes a distinct personality. When Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem, the Bible says, when the time came for his final trip to that city to celebrate the Passover one last time with his friends, it's saying that the time had come for him to meet his fate head on. He was about to finish the work he'd begun that first Christmas by accomplishing our salvation once and for all on the cross. The work that began with his incarnation, that he stepped down from his throne in heaven, took on our flesh, willing to be born uh, as a a little baby, to grow up and lead a sinless life that we couldn't live, and then finally to to make our final accomplishment for our salvation on the cross. The disciples had had finally begun to, to sense a danger not only to Jesus, but to themselves as well. The Lord told him of his plan to stop and and heal his friend Lazarus on the way. He'd received word that the man was was dying, but he delayed the trip that might have resulted in his miraculous cure until it was too late. And then he tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. It was clear something big was about to happen. They didn't know it, but Jesus planned to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. It was Thomas who wanted to be included in all of it. And if Jesus was going to do something special for Lazarus, Thomas wanted to be involved in it too. He wanted a part of that. He said, then let us go that we may die with him. Fearless, faithful, trusting, loyal. That was Thomas. But we don't remember him for that. We also forget that the very moments of Thomas' doubt, we have the one place in all the gospel where the divinity of Christ is bluntly and undeniably expressed. And isn't it interesting that that the same story that gives Thomas his infamous nickname is the story that has Thomas making his earth-shattering confession of faith. Seeing the risen Christ eight days later, invited to examine the scars for himself, Thomas proclaims, My Lord and my God. Not teacher, Lord. Not Messiah, but God. It's the only place where Jesus is called God without any qualification of any kind. It's exclaimed by Thomas with the same conviction as he might be uh, saying the, the sun is shining today. You know, You're my Lord and, and, and God. Those aren't the words of a doubter. but Sadly, they're not the words he's remembered for. Unfortunately, history has remembered him for Jesus' comment more for our sake really than his that night. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus didn't appear that second time with Thomas in attendance to belittle him. He came to bring him peace. Peace through faith, not in an idea or concept or principle or any of the false religions or, or mystic things people put their faith in today, but in a person, in the person of Christ, a real in-the-flesh person, one who suffered just like we suffer, but even more, who was tempted like we're tempted, but even more. And yet, one who never sinned, even as he lived among us and gave his life up for us. His confession regarding the the person of Christ, my Lord and my God, is one that provides a foundation for our own faith. It's a faith that doesn't subscribe to that old adage, seeing is believing, but rather the Jesus brand of faith that reminds us, believing is seeing. God has come to us in Jesus Christ who continues his mission through doubters and and sinners and and people just like Thomas and just like you and I. We all need a Savior. You know, faith is a willingness to believe in him and follow him, even when we're, we're not sure where it will lead us. Faith is trusting, even in the dark times, that God will provide because Jesus has already provided and overcome. It's a willingness to plan and to reach out, because we know the one who holds the whole world in his hand, and yet still reached out to us, who sees and holds our future. Now, just because Thomas may have had a moment of doubt about the resurrection, he never stopped loving Jesus, and Jesus never stopped loving him. He showed Thomas his scars so that he would know just how much. And now, once again, he's shown us a bright light to go with you in your own dark times. May God bless your journey. Amen. And now may that uh, very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.